0: Pastor Charles. Yeah, I just want to say a quick word about uh, generosity. You know, a phrase we use at times is generosity changes everything. And uh, you're being generous by sharing Jeremy and his uh, family with the world. And when you uh, take part in the giving catalog that we just distributed, you're you're changing a slice of the world nearby and far away. Um, When you take a shoebox and send it to a kid. It's amazing what happens in their lives over there. So thank you for being generous. Generosity changes everything, not just the life of the recipient, but it changes our hearts too as we give. So thank you. I want to bring us to the book of Ephesians. And it should be on there. There we go. There's Ephesians right there. Uh, Paul wrote this letter when he was in a Roman prison to the church in Ephesus. But before we get into Ephesians, I want to Direct your attention to a verse that's really easy to read right by. It's from Psalm 133 How good and pleasant it is when God's people live together in unity. Unity. That's really the theme for today. I have a really good friend. We talk every week, especially during football season. His name's Doug, and he's the head football coach at New Mexico State University. He used to be the head coach at Kent State. And, um, he will tell you, as will any coach of any kind of team, will tell you that unity on a team is absolutely critical. Before the season starts, every team is united. And if the team is having a winning season, as the wins begin to mount, unity is not threatened. But as those losses begin to mount, and as it is with my friend Doug's team this uh, fall, you, know, you can hear, begin to hear snarky comments in the locker room. What's he doing on the team? He doesn't do anything for the team. How does he contribute? How do you ever get on this team? Things like that. And uh, unity can begin to uh, dissolve as divisiveness begins to grow. And a wise and smart and good coach will see what's going on and and do whatever it takes to sort of rebuild that spirit of unity. Now, it doesn't have to be a sports team. It can be a, a family. It can be a marriage, a relationship, a church. Nobody, no organization moves forward without unity. It was around 55 AD, and the Apostle Paul had spent about a couple years in the city of Ephesus, a big metropolis of a city, helping to grow the church there. But he gets wind that on the other side of the sea, over in Greece, the church in Corinth, Is experiencing divisiveness and unity is threatened. So he writes this letter to the Corinthians. It's the letter of 1 Corinthians where he addresses all of the problems there and and calls them back to unity. That's around 55 AD. A couple years later, Paul finds himself sitting in prison in Rome, writing a letter to the church back in Ephesus where he was. And maybe it's his recollection of what happened in Corinth, or maybe it's just his understanding of human nature and how. Easily, unity is threatened. He writes a letter to the Ephesians. And a predominant theme in this letter we're looking at is this idea of unity. Now, in a couple of weeks, when we get to chapter 4, we're going to see some very practical ways to keep unity within the church. Any relationship. In fact, when my wife and I were going through pre-marriage counseling many years ago, Uh, The pastor primarily spent most of his time just in Ephesians chapter 4. This is how you build and keep unity. But we're not there yet. Where we are today is in uh, chapter 2, verse 11 through chapter 3, verse 13. And in these verses, Paul is talking about unity, but it's not the practical like how-tos. It's more like um, the, the theological foundational understanding of why unity is important and how we get unity. It reminds me of Vince Lombardi, you know this story, speaking to the Green Bay Packers football team, struggling at the time. And he wants to return them to the basics. And he holds up a football and says, gentlemen, this is a football. And Paul's letter to the Ephesians is sort of like church. This is unity. So here we go. Chapter 2, verse 11. This is what Paul writes. Don't forget that you Gentiles used to be outsiders. Let me stop right there for a moment. Gentiles. What is that? A Gentile, it's a non-Jew. There there were the Jewish people, and the Jewish people called everybody else non-Jews Gentiles. So don't forget that you Gentiles, you non-Jews, used to be outsiders. You were called uncircumcised heathens by the Jews who were proud of their circumcision, even though it affected only their bodies and not their hearts. In those days, you were living apart from Christ. You were excluded from citizenship among the people of Israel, and you did not know the covenant promises God had made to them. You lived in this world without God and without hope. Let's stop there. I want to return in a few moments to those first two words, don't forget. But first, let me just give some context. You know, the Bible is a big book. You know that. It's a very long story. And near the beginning of the story... God calls a guy by the name of Abraham, out of sheer grace, calls Abraham. And from Abraham comes the nation of Israel, chosen by God, by God's sheer grace. And Israel, this nation of Jewish people, they are to be a light to the nations. In fact, the, the surrounding nations, as they looked at Israel, worship the one true God. It was supposed to work like this. We want that God. But it didn't work out like that. Instead of being a light, they were like a little flickering candle. Not much of a light. In fact, as time went by, the Jewish people just became so prideful. Look at us. We're chosen by God. And they became contemptuous even toward the Gentiles, toward the non-Jews. We're chosen by God and you're not. Things like that. We're circumcised and you're not. Well, that's a whole other topic we can talk about sometime. Circumcision was just an external uh, physical symbol uh, representing a covenant relationship with God. <clears throat> Bottom line the, the Jews treated the Gentiles, the non Jews, like second class citizens. Like, how in the world could God ever choose you like He's chosen? How could God ever love you? So, now, back to the two words don't forget. There's some things we should forget. Like I can think of some incredibly embarrassing stories in my life. I wish I could forget them, but I can't. There's some things we shouldn't forget. Some things we should remember, most likely. Like, for example, do you remember when you were out of a job, but now you've got one? Don't forget the time when your health was bad, but now you are strong and healthy. Don't forget the time when you just struggled making ends meet, but now you're much more comfortable. There's some value in remembering, not forgetting, because we realize and appreciate what we have now. And Paul's saying to the Ephesians, don't forget. There was a time when you were separated from God There was a time when you were far from God, when you didn't have a heartbeat for God. Your trespasses, your sins separated you from God. It's very much like what we heard last week in chapter 2, verses 1 through 10. Paul could say the same thing to us. He does say the same thing to us. Don't forget. Don't forget. There was a time when you did not know God. There was a time when you did not have a relationship with God. And there's value in not forgetting that because now you realize and appreciate what you have now and what has happened. But what happened? What happened to the Ephesians, to you and me, as believers in Christ? Paul goes on and he says this, But now you have been united with Christ Jesus once you were far away from God, but now you have been brought near to him through the blood of Christ. Don't forget There was a time when you were far away. But out of God's sheer grace, through the cross of Christ alone, and by your faith, you have been brought near to God. And now not the Jew, not anyone else is closer to God than you are. We are together. Now, Paul goes on to develop this idea with these words. For Christ himself has brought peace to us, He united Jews and Gentiles into one people, into one human race. When in his own body on the cross, he broke down the wall of hostility that separated us. He did this by ending the system of law with its commandments and regulations. He made peace between Jews and Gentiles by creating himself one new people from the two groups, one new humanity. Together as one body, Christ reconciled both groups to God by means of his death on the cross and our hostility toward each other was put to death. He brought this good news of peace to you Gentiles who were far away from him and peace to the Jews who were near. Now all of us can come to the Father through the same Holy Spirit because of what Christ has done for us. Let's stop there. There are a lot of... Complex theology there. Let's, let's, let's unpack a little bit of it before we do that. Let me just tell you a quick story. A couple of guys and I are reading through a favorite book of mine by Philip Yancey called What's So Amazing About Grace? Maybe you've read it before. And in Yancey's book, he tells a story told by Ernest Hemingway in one of his works, Ernest Hemingway, the author. Ernest Hemingway tells the story of a young man who runs away from home. This is in Spain. He runs away from home and he runs to the capital city of Madrid. And eventually his father goes searching for him, trying to find him. Can't locate him. So he takes an ad out in the newspaper. And this is how the ad reads. Paco, meet me at Hotel Montaña, noon Tuesday. All is forgiven. Papa. The dad shows up on that Tuesday at the town square next to the Hotel Montana, And what he finds in the square are 800 young men looking for their fathers, all of these young men named Paco. And what Hemingway understood was this sense of ungrace that existed in so many homes. Ungrace. That's not a term we hear very often. In this room, we talk about grace, unmerited favor. But there is such a thing as ungrace. And the Gentiles, the non-Jews, felt that from the Jews all the time. Ungrace. You know, Paul was a, was a Jew. He was, he punctiliously, I love that term, punctiliously, precisely kept the ceremonial laws. And he understood the mindset of the Jews. And the mindset was this, that we are above everyone else because we keep the regulations and laws of the the Scriptures. We are better than everybody else. We are chosen by God. We are the sole objects of God's love. That was the mindset. They exuded and they breathed the sense of ungrace. What these Jewish people overlooked and did not realize, though it was clear in Scripture, which Paul came to eventually understand, that all of those ceremonial laws that start at the beginning of Scripture pointed to a day. All of the prophets who came along and spoke to the Jewish nation pointed to a day. When God would send someone who would perfectly fulfill the ceremonial laws and die for the sins of humanity, Jesus Christ. Once for all, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he would bring us to God. So now the ceremonial laws are are set aside, no longer needed, because Christ is now our sacrificial substitute. When I was a kid, we, we, I loved playing kick the can, flashlight tag, hide and seek, right? And, and at the end of the game, when not everybody had come in, somebody would yell, ollie ollie income free. Did you do that when you were a kid? Ollie ollie income free. And everybody would come in. This is what Paul is saying to all of us, to the Ephesians. Oli in income free. By God's sheer grace through the cross of Christ. The wall of hostility between us and God has been, remo- been removed and we can enter into a relationship with God freely because of Christ. Not only that, but the wall of hostility between the Jews and the non-Jews is completely removed. And we stand on level ground before the cross. All of us, Pacos, equally, receiving the forgiving love of God through Christ. All of us, united in Christ, united with each other. Now, Paul goes on to help us understand the consequences of all of what he's just said about unity. This is what he says. So now, or consequently, you Gentiles, you non-Jews, are no longer strangers and foreigners. You are citizens along with all of God's holy people. You are members of God's family. Together we are his house, built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets, and the cornerstone is Christ Jesus himself. We are carefully joined together in him, becoming a holy temple for the Lord. Through him you... Gentiles are also being made part of this dwelling where God lives by His Spirit. A couple years ago, um, I I was inducted into the Huron High School Athletic Hall of Fame. Just looking at me, you can tell that probably happened. I'm kidding, and I and I and I and I say I I have fun saying it that way. only because, actually, I was inducted with an entire team of players. We were all inducted. We were 10-0 that year. We were 10-0 the year before that. I was a sophomore, and I was terrible. (laughs) All the way up through my senior year, I didn't like to hit people, and I didn't like to get hit, which makes a terrible football player. (laughs) But do you know I went to every practice. I participated in every drill. They gave me a uniform. I was on the team. That's me, a Hall of Famer, right there. I will sign autographs afterward. And by the way, that's me with hair, right there. Essentially, what Paul is saying to the Ephesians, saying to us, that by God's grace through faith, you have been brought into this heavenly hall of fame team, God's people. Now, of course, Paul doesn't use football as a metaphor. But did you, did you read them? In, in what we just read, there were three metaphors he uses to help us understand the unity that we have in Christ and with each other. He writes, you are citizens along with all of God's holy people. We are citizens. Do you know you have a passport? And your passport says the kingdom of heaven, where, which is ruled by God. And you might come from a Methodist background, a Presbyterian background, a Baptist background, a Catholic background, a Mennonite background, an Amish background, or no background whatsoever. That's okay. Because now we are all brought into the same citizenship, the kingdom of heaven ruled by God. He goes on and he says, you are members of God's family, not just a passport. Do you know you have a birth certificate that is similar to the birth certificate of the people all around you who are followers of Christ? We share a similar bloodline by God's Spirit. My wife and I have three children. Yesterday, our daughter had her 26th birthday. I don't know how that happened, how it went so fast, but I remember when they were little and they would argue, they'd fight, and you know, we'd call them together and we'd try to sort things out, but at the very end, I have my dad talk and I help them understand, we are family. We disagree on things, but we are family. Some of you have, many of you have siblings. and Some of those siblings you, you may love dearly, some you may just really struggle with and argue with, but at the end of the day, your family. Your birth certificates show that. We are family. And then he goes on to say, Together we are his house built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets, and the cornerstone is Christ Jesus himself. People are fond of calling the church God's house, the house of God. Well, it's not really. It's a building. We are the church. We are ca- the church, capital C. We are God's house right here. And God's house, the church, is built on the teaching of the apostles and the prophets, Scripture. And what we read in Scripture, that each of us in this room who are followers of Christ, we are one stone in that building, not one stone more important than the other stone, but all honoring the chief cornerstone, who is Christ Jesus himself. We are citizens of the kingdom of heaven. We are family. We are part of a house. Now, to belabor this point of unity, even getting into chapter 3, these are the words of Paul. And this is God's plan. Both Gentiles and Jews who believe the good news share equal, equally in the riches inherited by God's children. Both are part of the same body and both enjoy the promise of blessings because they belong to Christ Jesus. No, I'm thinking, Paul, come on. You've talked about unity a lot Why belabor the issue? I'll tell you why he belabors the issue. The same reason we need to. It is so easy for us in the church to look down on somebody else. Conversely, at times it's easy for some to look up and think, I'll never be like that. May I just talk to you as a family? As a church? As fellow members on the team who wear different numbers and play different positions? We must never be divided over gender, over race, over color, over socioeconomic status, over education, over athletic ability, over appearance, over political persuasion, over different theological nuances that seem to drag us down. I could go on and on and on. No. Why? Because we're citizens of the same kingdom. We are family. We have the same building. We are the church. I think it's interesting. When you get to chapter 3, Paul begins to say something, and it's like he stops himself. He doesn't pick it up until verse 14. From verse 2 through verse 13... It is one long, breathless, unpunctuated sentence. It's like he would get an F in grammar school. He just goes on and on and on and on, talking about unity. And in the middle of this one long, breathless sentence are these words. God's purpose in all this was to use the church to display his wisdom and its rich variety to all the unseen rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. That means everyone everywhere. This was his eternal plan, which he carried out through Christ Jesus, our Lord. What was was his eternal plan? Three times in this passage, Paul talks about the mystery, the mystery of God. How God How is God going to bring us all together? It's through the cross of Christ. We are all brought together, and together we are called what? The church. The other day, my wife and I were with some friends out in the country, and crossing the road is a group of turkeys. And I was just passing the time. I said, what's a group of turkeys called anyways? I didn't know. I looked it up. A group of turkeys is called a rafter of turkeys. I didn't know that. A group of fish is called a school. I knew that. A group of birds is called, what, a flock? A flock of birds, that sounds right. What about a, what about a group of corpuses or dolphins. It's a pod. What what about a group of frogs? That's an army. What what about a group of bears? That's a sleuth. What about a group of um, porcupines? It's called a prickle. What about a group of giraffes? It's called a tower. I can go on and on. But let me ask you, what What is a group of Christians called? What is a group of Christ followers called? It's not a prickle, although we can be like that. It's not a tower, although we can find ourselves looking down at others at times. A group of Christians is called the church. Capital C. We are united together. We are a team. Different numbers, different positions, but united, and we need to understand that. It comes through Christ alone. So as a church, can I close with just some some simple challenges? Let's be an example of unity to the world. Can we do that? In a world that's disunited, in a world that has divided, let's be united. Let's demonstrate we are a family on the same team. Let's play different positions, but wear the same uniform. Let's have different preferences, but agree on Christ. Let's see and treat each other as equals at the cross. Let's be a church united around the grace of of God, which alone brings us into the family of God. And let's invite others and welcome them onto this team because it's open to everyone. Back to the beginning. How good and pleasant it is when God's people live together in unity. Let's pray. And now, God, thank you for your word and for the challenges of it. Thank you for bringing us into the family of God, into the church, by your grace, through faith in Christ alone. Help us to be that kind of church, united. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. As we do each week, let's, let's close with a benediction. Would you mind standing with me if you're able? And let's look at the screen. And uh, I think we're going to have it here in a second. There we go. Let's read this out loud together. Now all glory to God who is able through his mighty power at work within us to accomplish infinitely more than we might ask or think. Church, have a great weekend. Accepting love again for all my days.